All right, well, we'll get started this morning. So this will be our last lesson from the Capitol Hill Baptist core seminar on stewardship. And this morning's title is Idolatry, the Enemy of Stewardship. So again, following material here from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. So we've spent uh, quite a amount of time, uh, almost uh, three months or so, on the topic of stewardship, and have got to cover uh, the category of faithfulness. We've looked at themes related to money, health, time, uh, work, skills, and th- things of these natures. And I think it's been really good. And um, And maybe you guys have experienced this. As, as you study or you think about what's good, it informs our conscience or it informs us of uh, truly what God wants from us. And in so doing, it can show us you know, greater and greater degrees of insufficiency, of sin, of corruption, and things of that nature, right? How we've failed or how we could be better stewards, right? And you just think of some of those categories that we've covered. But whenever we think of um, whenever we think of those categories or when we see that gap, it's appropriate appropriate for us not just to look at the fruit or look at the results or behaviors or that means I need to give more money or I need to shepherd my time better or I need right and you kind of fill in the blank. But it's helpful for us to go a layer deeper when we deal with the realities of the heart. And in, when we deal with the realities of the heart, we get into this really, really messy subject of idolatry. And, and that's where we're gonna you know, go ahead and kind of park it here for the, the capstone, if you will, right? Like, wh- what is the real enemy that we're dealing with here? It's idolatry. And as an example, just to help us you know, kind of get uh, our arms around this. We're going to start with the example of Abraham. So if you all remember the story of Abraham, God makes a great promise to him in Genesis 12. He says, uh, you know, in, in verse, verses 2 and 3, um, uh, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And, uh, and then later in chapter 15, he says, uh, when um, he says, uh, he tells Abram, uh, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted, to, counted it to him as righteousness. Right? And so that then that kind of sets the stage and then there's this long gap, right? And then Isaac appears on the stage. And uh, this Isaac becomes the object of parental affection, divine promise, Miraculous intervention. Abraham's almost a hundred years old, and and now um, they father uh, with he and Sarah a son, Isaac. And and so following this this example and, and the thought process here um, from uh, from from Tim Keller's book Counterfeit Gods, uh, they go on to say, when we look in Genesis chapter twenty-two, God says in verses one and two, after these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, 
whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Verses 1 and 2. Right? And we know the story. Abraham goes, he obeys, and, and just as he's about to kill his son, right, an angel from heaven appears and stops him, and God provides a substitute, a ram in the thicket. And then we have the retelling of the promise. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So in this example of testing, God didn't test Abraham in the sense that you test an unknown substance, right? A test of discovery, uh, right? Where you don't know what you've got. You don't know what's, what's there, right? God knows all things. He sees all things. Everything is present before him, right? And we think of this passage, uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, right? The Lord knows what's going on. But instead, this testing is where... God is testing Abraham similarly to how he tested Job. As you test gold in the fire to prove what it really is. Right? And, and this is how Keller goes on to describe it. He says, uh, God's extremely rough treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham, but he was not safe to have and hold until Abraham was willing to put God first. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. And I think there's something important there. Because idolatry, generally speaking, is not the taking of something that is bad and making it worse. Idolatry is taking good, God-given things and then making them idols, right? Corrupting those good things, deforming those things. And that's what we're going to tackle this morning, the enemy of stewardship, right? Or if you will, willing to put God first in all things, joyfully submitting to the Lord in all things. And that's the thing. When we love the gifts more than the giver, we destroy both ourselves and God's gifts, and we defame the God of glory. Right? And so, as we, as we look to transition to point two, so our introduction, introducing this idea of idolatry. So secondly, how gifts become idols. So as we think about this idea of idolatry, it's important for us to note the, the, the first commandment, right? We think of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And, it, and it's that very thing. And, and I, I don't know if you all can express a similar uh, feeling, if you will. I struggle with pinpointing idolatry because I generally think of false gods as physical things and uh, as a, apart from realities in my heart, I feel like I constantly have to keep going back and thinking through, you know, the false gods that come up and that I worship in my own heart. And, and so speaking of this idea of heart idolatry, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel 14. So when you think of the pantheon of gods in the Old Testament that were, that were worshipped, right, and incorrectly or falsely so, 
Again, it can be easy to give in that impression. But turn with me to Ezekiel 14. That this issue of the heart is always present, even in the Old Testament, right? In, if you will, in the battle of the gods, right? You have the Lord versus every other false god. But look in Ezekiel 14 with me. And let's read Ezekiel 14, verse 3. If I can have someone willing to read Ezekiel 14, 3. All right, Matt. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, and so there's a sense when we think about idols, right? Idols are generally a physical representation of something, right? Of, uh, of, uh, of, of a deity. And, and, and then you look at the language here, right? That they have taken these idols in their hearts. And that, and that is the reality of what's taking place. And that's the reality that we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about is working through these heart idols, right? Truly, it is where the battle is. And just a definition for, for an idol, you know, as, um, a helpful definition is listed here. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And you see that definition there on your notes. So what does that mean? What is the implication of something like that? That means every good gift is a candidate for idolatry. There is nothing good that is off the table when it comes to idolatry. Money, health, rest, time, abilities, skills, All these things. So in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller discusses three helpful ways or basic ways the Bible talks about idolatry. And you can see those in your handout here, uh, the three biblical, biblical metaphors for idolatry. What I want to do is just, we're going to take a minute with, with each of them. So the first one is the metaphor of love or marital love. And turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Maybe some of you, you know, you can think of these different texts where the Lord uh, 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 calls when his people turn from him spiritual adultery. Or where those examples are used. And Hosea is one of the clearest examples, right, where, uh, where, uh, where this can be displayed. So look with me in Hosea chapter 1, and let's read verses 2 and 3. And if I can have a volunteer read Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3. Barani? Excellent. And I want us to focus there on verse 2. 
right? It's always helpful to pay attention to some of these details. At the, at the end of verse 2, see where it says, for the land commits, right? That for is the basis. So Hosea, this prophet of the Lord, I want you to go and take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom because the land, right, referring to the people on that land, commits great whoredom or adultery by forsaking the Lord, right? So this physical reality uh, that, that, that we can see in relationships pictures an even greater spiritual reality that takes place with idolatry. So when the Bible uses this metaphor of marriage and, and this marriage of adultery, it, it's picturing for us where we love something more than God and that becomes spiritual adultery. And you can see on your, on your little you know, box in your notes, if you will, right? Promises made by the idol are um, significance, value, worth, uh, beauty, And we see these idols when we ask ourselves, what do I value most in life? What do I want most in life? And just maybe as, a, as, an, as an easy example, right? Because we respond to what, what we love. Idolatry of our abilities can often fall into this category where our abilities and our skills or, or, or even our work, right? Or our position where they can become and they define our worth and our significance, our identity, and so we prostitute ourselves to them. And and it is a false lover, a false love. So that's, that's one example of idolatry. But the second analogy, or the second metaphor, is, is more a religious metaphor using the language of salvation. So turn with me to uh, Isaiah. So go, you know, a couple, couple prophets to the left. Let's go to Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, if I can have someone read verse 20. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Excellent. Right? They keep on praying to a God that cannot save. So, what do we find with this metaphor? We find the idea of comfort. We find the idea of security, control, that those things that we want, right? And these idols falsely promise such deliverance and comfort and security. Right? They're exposed when we ask, what alleviates our fears? And we get an answer other than the Lord. And maybe just by way of an example, money can easily fall into this category. 
because money can be, and again, money, when we think of it as in, in a good way, can and does help in times of need and provide a certain level of comfort. But when we go and turn to money to provide that comfort, and it's not the Lord that we find that comfort in, and then knowing the gifts that he gives us, that becomes an idol because we look to that to give us that comfort and that control and that security we want. So lastly, let's look at this this one that Keller calls a political metaphor. Really, it's the metaphor for allegiance. Who will we obey? Who will we submit to? And really, idols can fit more than one metaphor, right? And especially this third one is almost like a, a symptom of the first two, right? Because the reality is, who will you obey? Who will you submit to? Because idols will put claims on us. Idols will want us to submit entirely to them. And turn with me to Romans. Romans actually, uh, Paul captures this really well, right? When we, when we read it slowly and we, and we look at the language of service. In Romans chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 24 and 25. And if I can have a volunteer read uh, verses 24 and 25. Romans chapter 1. 24 and 25. Sabrina? Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. No, perfect. So, Look here at this language. So look, verse, look at verse 25, where we see Paul dissecting idolatry, right? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And, that, and that's it right there, right? There is the exchange and the service to idols. But then notice in verse 24, right, how it manifests itself. Look at that in verse 24. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, right? It's the desires. It's the outworking of what's on the inside, right? And, then, and that's what we see, right? In the end of verse 24, they then go and manifest it in God-dishonoring behaviors and actions, right? And God-dishonoring fruit. So, so when we think about that, right, when we believe the promises of a false lover or a false savior, it's going to result in obedience to an idol, right? And easily, this idol often surfaces in seemingly uncontrollable anger or anxiety or despondency or guilt, the results that come from obedience to idols when we submit to them as our master. So any, any questions or comments so far? We're just kind of like digging into, you know, working through some of the heart idols. Any questions or comments? All right. 
Well, let's turn then to section three. So we looked at how gifts can become idols, some helpful metaphors for idolatry. Now let's look at why idols are evil. Idols, when we trust and love and obey idols, it says something. It says something really loudly. Because idols are enemies of God. They are false expressions of who he is. And so when, when we think of stewardship and we think of idolatry, it helps us to see this big picture where we put all of this together and not simply as stewardship and then we immediately turn to actions and results, which can easily easily turn into uh, legalistic standards and, and simply just behavior changes without working in our hearts. And in reality, stewardship proclaims truth about God and idolatry lies about him. When we steward something well in our hearts, we rightly show we rightly show and proclaim who God is and how good he is, right? And when we trust idols, it wrongly lies about him, right? And doesn't proclaim his goodness, right? And we just go back to that original example, right? Uh, that we started with in the beginning of the class, uh, the beginning of the whole class uh, related to stewardship from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, Right, you have the two servants, and uh, they they don't they don't trust and believe the master, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the two do they do believe the master, and they go and they labor, and he says, good and faithful stu- um, um, steward or servant, and but the last one, the the last servant, doesn't believe the master, and is called wicked and unfaithful. Because there's something that is implied about the master, uh, or at least that's proclaimed in those actions, right? And that, and that I think is really important for us. That when we think about stewardship, it's much bigger. We're thinking about what we are proclaiming about God and then joyfully submitting in faith and putting all the gifts that he's given to us in front of him for his use, right? And if he takes away his gifts, that we'll praise him for it. And if he allows us to keep his gifts, we'll praise him for it. So, that I think can be very, very helpful. And like you see on your notes there in the middle, viewing stewardship through a lens of results versus a lens of faith, right? A a lens of results will keep us out of heart territory, right? It's good for us to look at fruit. It's good for us to look at results and behaviors and actions. But it's more important that we look at the heart because that is where faith grows and develops and nurtures and and takes deeper and deeper root. So then... I want to offer both a warning and an encouragement. 
The warning is simple. Stewardship can be a safe haven for legalism, where we use our money, our time, our bodies, our skills, just enough for God to feel like we're being righteous when in fact we're deluding ourselves. It's not done out of faith. It's not done where we want to put God on display. And it's helpful to think of this when we think of Solomon and his syncretism, when he put the worship of the Lord and he mixed it with idols, right? We think of when Solomon was trying to honor the Lord, when he was sacrificing to the Lord, and then also sacrificing to the false god of Molech. God cares about our stewardship in as much as it shows our faith. Right? And that, and that leads us to an encouragement. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's enough. What matters isn't the size of your faith, but the size of our God. Right? And we can get caught up sometimes in questions, is this good enough? Can I do better? And those things, which, which those, those, are, those are fine, but that's not ultimate. The, the, um, uh, uh, the, the issue isn't uh, developing faith so much as it is that we have faith, that we're looking to the Lord and trusting Him. And in that, it grows. Right? And seeing stewardship from this very perspective, right? The Lord will continue to grow us, to mature us, and we will see that fruit over time. But what the Lord requires is for us to look to Him, to trust Him. So then, the enemy of stewardship is idolatry. And idolatry is evil because it proclaims that something is better than God, when in fact it is lying. And that, I think, can strike us for both a warning and also for encouragement that faithful stewardship can be a way that we proclaim who our God is. So then, let's, let's turn then to point number four. How can I find idolatry in my heart? So we've, we've looked at how gifts become idols, those, the three metaphors for idolatry, why idols are evil, but now let's turn to Point four, how can I find idolatry in my heart? Sometimes it can be hard for us, right? When you think, when you think about idols, idols can interweave in our hearts and our lives where they're difficult to detect or uh, they're just insidious, right? And that's because the reality is uh, our hearts uh, um, still, even, even in the flesh, Right? Even with the Spirit of God indwelling us, the heart can still be deceitful as we work through these things. So then, how do you know where you've made God's good gifts into false gods? Well, the, the reality is part of that's the lifelong project of sanctification as the Lord continues to work those things out. But some of the things that the Lord provides, the basic tools of the trade, if you will, we... We see the appropriate use of Scripture, right? Prayer and Scripture. Uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, right? And uh, how the person of the Holy Spirit works in the believer's life. Conforming, maturing, changing, and showing. Illuminating. We think of the local church and the, the means of grace the Lord provides in the local fellowship. 
We think of circumstances that God uses in our life to show us when we're grasping something too tightly, right? Or even, even our behavior sometimes, right? The fruit, if you will. Um, when, we, when we recognize the fruit in our life and we think, all right, you, you reap what you sow. Are there things that I'm reaping and I'm seeing the result of it that make me need to step back and think, right? So, and here's some helpful questions to ask. This is, this is a helpful little diagnostic you guys will see in your notes there. Just some helpful questions to ask. Like the first one asks, can I imagine being content if things turn out differently than I hope? Right? Or, or secondly, is my fear out of proportion to the situation? Right? Or you th- think of this example. Right? You've broken your arm as a collegiate baseball player. And, and this idea is just terrible because there's this fear that this might end your, your career. Not just for college, but for you know, the possibility to go big, right? To go into the MLB. So then you, you're obsessing about the details of, uh, each piece of the details of your recovery, right? And you're desperate to wrestle back control of your life for, for what you want. Thirdly, Am I a faithful steward today? Right? With that emphasis on today. Right? Am I stewarding what God has given me well today? Uh, Fourthly, do I feel I'm better than others because of my stewardship? Does this give me the ability to boast? Am I wrongfully attributing the graces I have to something inherent to me that allows me to look down on others. Or even question five. Do I feel God's cheated me out of what was rightfully mine? Right? And like an example um, that, I can, that I can think of or, or an illustration that, that, that we've used for a long time and even for myself is, you know, uh, the Lord gives us this open hand policy, right? Whatever He puts in that, what, whatever He puts in our hand, it's His right to take away. And that's what this question is getting at. Do we do we feel like what's in our hand is ours where we close it, and when the Lord goes to take it away, we feel like we're cheated, or we're missing something that really belongs to us? Yep, and then. And then six and seven are are also helpful. What are my most unyielding emotions? Sometimes our emotions are helpful indicators of something taking place at a deeper level in our heart, right? Anger or um, uh, 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 sadness that can almost feel uncontrollable, right? Or fear, right? All those things are taking place deep in our heart. So yeah, I think just some helpful questions just to to be able to work through. So, so let's go now to point five. I'm working through several points uh, here. So point five, fighting idolatry. And I want you to turn with me to the book of James. So a couple books over from Romans. Uh, turn with me to the book of James, and let's look at James chapter four. 
James chapter 4. And we'll, and we'll read this in just a minute. So when we think about fighting idolatry, right, one, I think it's just important for us to constantly keep reminding ourselves, rooting ourselves in our identity in hope, or our, our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ, our union with him, that provides the ground for the comfort we want, for the control, right? Because we're saying, Lord, you're in control. It provides the security that we need. All the things that we want, that we were built for, that we were created for, we find in God through Christ. And so then how do we fight idolatry, recognizing who we are in Christ? And we're going to look at this from a reactive standpoint and then from a proactive standpoint. I thought those were two helpful little nuances. We can think of reactive as the cases when we do see cases of idolatry or the outworkings of our heart, right? And for that, we repent. And then proactively, right, it's the engaging of faith and contentment in God's gifts, right? Correctly used. So when we think about repentance, right, we think about the response to idolatry, we think of repentance. So look with me in James chapter 4. And I'll read, uh, and I'll, I'll read starting in verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And let's pause there. Right? So let's think about this, right? What's happened in verse 1, right? We look at the passions or, uh, or uh, the other way to translate it is pleasures, right? The, the desires that are within our heart, right? And then in verse 2, we desire and we don't have, right? So that desire turns into disappointment. And disappointment in and of itself is not bad, right? It can be an appropriate emotion, as long as it's done in faith. But very easily, disappointment can turn into sin. And so we can see how this, how this desire slowly goes on the road of idolatry. And Paul Tripp talks about this, and, and it's well, he talks about how a desire becomes a demand which is expressed as a need. And then the way that we see it is when that need is not met, it sets me up for disappointment or even severe disappointment. So then, secondly, we get this idea of disobedience. So far, right, this is this has all been in my head, um, right? But then we see in verse 2 how it starts to break out into action, right? Like we saw. In verse 2, so you murder. Or uh, in the middle of verse 2, so you fight and quarrel. Because we see this demand, it gets expressed as a need. Or we see this demand um, that comes out of this desire. And because we don't get what we want, 
regardless of what God has in store for us, right, idolatry takes place. But then look, look with me in verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 4. Going back to that biblical metaphor of spiritual adultery, right? In verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So we see that this horizontal problem, right, or the way that it's shown, that I've got a desire, that desire wasn't met, right? And now there's friction, quarreling, calamity between people, but it's rooted in something deeper. And so it's not simply horizontal, but it's a vertical reality. Right? We think of it's a reality between us and the Lord. And that's, and that's exactly where James is drawing us here. That it's spiritual adultery when we go down this route of idolatry. Okay, just like we were talking about earlier. Right? And, th- and that really kind of takes you to the low, low point. Right? Where you, when you recognize the, the heinousness, the evilness of idolatry. Right? And, but then look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Lord knows and the Lord gives us grace to strengthen us, to renew us, to give us what we need to fight and battle, to overcome against idolatry. Right? Like, look with me. In verse 7, right? He kind of like just, just lays this out. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Or in verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So this is interesting. Right? We see, when, when, when we think of getting rid of um, idolatry and how messy it can be, um, we, and when we recognize it appropriately as sin, it... it it allows us to be able to identify it and confess it before the Lord, that we can humble ourselves before the Lord for changing. And there's an interesting note that, that, uh, that the author of this made. And when we, when we think about what we read in James 4, how the Lord gives us grace, and our response is, to draw near to God, humble ourselves, and draw near to God. And I think when, when we think about idolatry, there is something that, especially when we recognize it, that draws us away from the Lord, right? That makes it almost uncomfortable to go back to the Lord, right? And what we see here from, from what James 4 is saying, that we need to submit ourselves Draw near to the Lord. Go to Him. Confess it. Right? And the Lord is the one who will give us more grace. 
And the Lord, like it says in verse 10, right? In that future sense, he will exalt you. Right? The Lord is the one who will, who will strengthen and renew us. So that was the reactive side, right? The reactive side of repentance, uh, recognizing it, repenting of it, going to the Lord, confessing our sin to Him. But then we think of that proactive side, right? And, and, and thinking of this where we want to nourish and strengthen faith and our enjoyment of God's good gifts, the way in which he intended, right? If we were to think of it, you think of every good thing that God has given. If it is enjoyed the way God intended, there would never be sorrow with it. There would never be distortion with it. It would always be in proper proportion. There, would no, there, would, there shouldn't be any inappropriate emotions with it. Right? It would be enjoyed the way the Lord intended. And so how do we fight idolatry? Right? When we think of these good gifts, we are to enjoy them in faith in the way the Lord intended them, with thanksgiving. And in so doing, right, by trusting Him, by enjoying the gifts he gives us in his timing, under his circumstances, it also proclaims something about who God is, right? Going back to that. It proclaims how great the Lord is. So, let's take a look here with faith. What happens when, you, when you're deprived of those things that you've been called to steward? Right? Your health takes a toll, or someone steals your money. Do you trust that God has bigger plans for you? Or do we rage at Him? Are we tempted? Do we rage in our heart? A key tool that God uses for freeing our hearts from idolatry is to take away the gift that we're tempted to treat as a God. Every time we choose the path of faith amidst deprivation, the removal of some good thing, trusting God's good purposes despite what we've lost, we're moving our hearts, our hearts are moving one step closer to wholehearted, full-hearted, delighted service to the Lord. And that's what we want, right? Just like, you know, Lord, unite my heart to fear you, right? That whole heart service. But in the Christian life, there's a sense in which we deprive ourselves of good things, not in the sense of asceticism, but where we sacrifice for the good of others, right? Where we might um, uh, give uh, money or time or skills for the benefit of others, right? Where we, where we cheerfully give these things for the opportunity to bless and serve and strengthen others. And it, is, and it is faith that allows us to joyfully give when we don't receive 
and to take joy in such giving, right? Because of what it says about the God that we believe. Yeah, and so just, just turn with me. I feel like um, almost in every lesson we've gone to 1 Timothy, so it would almost be remiss to not be in 1 Timothy as we think about this proactive approach with faith and enjoyment. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, let's just look here in 1 Timothy, and then, and then we'll use that to come, come to a close this morning. So 1 Timothy 4, let's look at verse 4, and then we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, by way of reminder, if we can have someone read 1 Timothy 4 verse 4. Perfect. Yes. Just reorienting. Creation is good. What God has given to us is good. And it is to be stewarded appropriately. And then 1 Timothy 6. And let us read verse 17. Just a volunteer to read 1 Timothy 6, 17. Andrew? Excellent. Yeah, don't set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Set our hopes on God. And that last part, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, how do you take a proactive fight against idolatry? It is to, in faith, rightly enjoy what God has given to us in its proper season with an open hand. So with that, we'll come to a close. So we've seen how gifts can become idols, right? We've, we've talked about idolatry in our hearts. We've looked at three biblical metaphors, love, trust, and serving idols. We've looked at why idols are evil. We've looked at how we can you know, do some diagnostics in our heart in looking at idols and, and what's taking place there. And then we've also looked at fighting idolatry, right? And responding in repentance and then being proactive and walking in faith and enjoying the things that God has given us. So with that, any, any questions or comments before we come to a close? Well, let's go to the Lord and thank Him for this time. Father, we do just acknowledge that You are good. And all the things that You give us is a demonstration of Your goodness. And even when You remove those things in Your sovereign purposes, You are still good. And it is good for us. And we joyfully submit to these things, even in pain and in difficulty. We believe and trust who you are. And we want, by faith, to rightly proclaim and show who you are. That your name would get the glory. And so, Father, we do just pray that you would 
Enable us, strengthen us as worshipers of our triune God to walk as faithful stewards and to fight against these idols. These idols that, Father, as Christians, we struggle with day in and day out. And that is just the hard reality. And yet it's also that fight in knowing and loving you is all worth it. That we can rightly proclaim who you are and who you are for us in Christ. So Father, we pray for your blessing on the rest of this morning. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.